the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, alien bounties, power shields, and pulsar swords, and time-traveling penguins. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Mike Coopery discussing his new science fiction novel, The Family Business. Aliens have invaded Earth, but were beaten back to Mars by human resistance. Yet the alien-human collaborators, they remain. Now it's up to Nathan Foster of the Federal Recovery Service to bring these malefactors to justice. Mike Coopery will give us the scoop on his exciting novel in just a moment. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, I want to call your attention to our very cool Bain Books Teacher's Guides by offering an ebook sale this month. Bain Teacher Guides are developed by teachers and education experts for use by homeschoolers and teachers in the classroom. All Bain Teacher Guides provide a background of the novel, a complete and comprehensive summation of the story, a vocabulary list, individual chapter summaries, focus questions, and initiating activities, and uh, reading comprehension quizzes, thought-provoking discussion questions, and lots more. These are amazing resources, in other words, for amazing books, and they are downloadable free at bain.com forward slash study guides. And now for July, we offer $1 off all the Bain eBooks that have a teacher guide that goes along with them. These include great books like 1632 by Eric Flint, Monster Hunter International by Larry Correa, A Beautiful Friendship by David Weber, and some great Heinleins such as The Star Beast, Farmer in the Sky, and The Rolling Stones. Stock up for education, for entertainment, or both, and check out the Bain Teacher Guides. They're a wonderful resource for everyone. And you can find the complete list of teacher guides and discount ebooks at Bain.com. Hey, the July hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are here. First up is The Serpent by David Drake. Young Knight Pal is one of the most respected members of Lord John's Hall of Champions. Now Powell will need all his talents to deal with the monsters the waste throws at him to unify the growing realm and to rescue a damsel in distress who has been locked in a force fill for decades. It's Camelot in the future, folks. Also in July is Grantville Gazette 9. Here's a generous helping of stories of Grantville, the American town lost in time, and its impact on the people and societies of a tumultuous age. Featuring stories by Eric Flint, Griffin Barber, and a wonderful assortment of other writers. And finally, out in July is The Family Business by Mike Coopery. A federal recovery agent must hunt down a young woman implanted with an alien device and her mentally unstable former commando boyfriend. The job sounds easy, but the young woman may have been implanted with something else, something much more important to the implacable alien visitors and to the free people of Earth. Serpent by David Drake, Granville Gazette 9, edited by Eric Flint, Walt Boys, and Joy Ward, and The Family Business by Mike Coopery are now available at booksellers everywhere. Well, welcome Mike Coopery to the podcast. Hello, everybody. Mike Coopery is the author of- everything's good with us here at the bain headquarters office <laughs> complex uh, mike cooper is the author of debut science fiction novel or brother's keeper and that was followed up by sins of her father um, as well as with co-author um, larry korea the best-selling dead six uh series um i guess what is that big compendium book called invisible wars the, yeah the invisible wars is the uh compendium of the three novels in the dead six series plus a couple of short stories there's 
a short story by Larry and a two-part short story by myself and author friend of mine, Peter Nealon, who is an right. indie, he's an indie author in his own right, but he contributed a story to that anthology or compendium. Yeah, I remember now editing that. Um, the main novels are Dead Six, Swords of Exodus, and Alliance of Shadows, although I believe Alliance of Shadows is the middle one. Is that? No, that is the third one. That is the third one. Uh, Mike grew up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and enlisted at the age of 17 uh, in the Army. Yep. Okay. I don't, it just says enlisted on it. We got to fix that. Uh, I, I did it. I, yeah. I enlisted in the Army National Guard when I was 17. I had to get a permission slip signed by my mom. So she might not have signed it if she were new, if she knew you were going to become an explosive ordnance disposal technician. Um, well, that didn't come till later. See, I did six years in the Guard as a, I was a combat engineer. And then I got out and I had a, I was out from 2004 to 2008. I joined the Air Force and then became an explosive ordnance disposal oh, technician. I, yeah. I didn't actually tell my mom what I was going to be doing in the military until well after the fact. I didn't want to stress her out. Probably a good decision. Uh, Mike served uh, six years, as he said, in the Army National Guard. He worked. He has worked uh, then in the Air Force. He where you were? Uh, where were you? Um, and EOD technician was it Afghanistan or yeah oh my home station was Hill Air Force Base in Utah I did a tour in Afghanistan I got around a lot I was a reservist but the career field was short-handed enough that if you wanted to be on active duty orders there was always some shop somewhere that needed help mm -hmm. so I went to Washington up to Fairchild I did a staff tour at headquarters I was in Germany for six months it was pretty good very cool. Um, you worked as security contractor with several firms. Uh, you did a tour in Southwest Asia with a private military company and are an NRA certified firearms instructor. Um, sharing an interest was. <laughs> yeah. You and you and Larry met up at a at a gun discussion board, right? To uh, and that's where Dead yes, that's born. that's where I'm. Met him. I started. I started hanging out in 2006. I had just moved to Utah. I started um, hanging out at his gun store after that, and then all this happened. I see. So this is before he was the international lord of anything, by the way. Right. So, <laughs> so, so you met him physically before you met him online, or was that no, the way around? It was the other way around. I see. Um, well, out now at booksellers everywhere is this solo novel by uh, Mike Cooper, The Family Business, um, with a great quote by Larry on front. Mike Cooper is an awesome storyteller, he says. Um, this is the 3D version we have here as well. Um, we have these 3D printers that print out books that way. Um, Hello, I'd like, to, I'd like to introduce everyone yes. to Jax, my Conyer, who is having some separation anxiety, so... Aww. If he gets noisy, I'll issue him. So he doesn't want to be on his perch right now, I guess. Yeah. Be quiet. So do you write with uh, with Jax on your uh, shoulder? He actually, to be honest, he actually just tells me what to write, and I just do the typing. <laughs> I see. I see. Um, you shouldn't reveal your secrets like that. But, uh, Oops. You know, but we can edit that out in post, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody might be coming to get Jax. Um, that that wants to uh, to write a best selling novel. All right, um, so let's talk about the family business, which is it's not related to your two previous books. This is totally different. Um, yep, this is a standalone novel. Yeah, it's set on Earth and uh, in a sort of post apocalyptic future, and it's not exactly post. Explain the setting, maybe, and and the background before we get into everything. It's it's kind of post-apocalyptic and it's i don't really give a specific timeline like a time frame when it happens it's their version it's an alternate world so it's their version of right now um prior to the story's beginning about 30 years or so aliens landed on earth they needed a they were desperate for a place to go they showed up they landed they basically took over africa because people weren't that willing to go defend it and started terraforming it there. 
and and humans got along with them for a while but eventually a war started and the aliens lost um this is set the novel set after the war about 10 eight or 10 years after the war um the aliens have lost and have fled the earth for the most part much of the earth was left in ruins um but it was and, i mean it, the, it was a close thing right um, yes this was not an easy victory they the human forces used a lot of nuclear weapons and aliens dropped a lot of rocks from space on cities so and they even the aliens even engineered a biological weapon to uh try and thin out the human population before they gave up eventually they, they realized that they couldn't take the earth without rendering it uninhabitable because um, we would destroy our own planet before we let them have it and they didn't really understand that logic so they fled to mars and are starting this slow process of trying to terraform that planet as like their second place consolation prize and they uh, we call them grays um is that it is this what is this kurt miller cover who did this let's see let's have a look oh it's a sam oh, kennedy yeah. sam kennedy cover so is that a somewhat accurate depiction of uh, what one of those aliens might look like on the yes um yeah i decided to go with the uh the classic um conspiracy theory sci-fi trope of the gray aliens with big eyes it's ingrained in american pop culture it's what most people think of when they think of an alien for a variety of reasons. So I thought it'd be fun to try and just explore that and go with that. Mm -hmm. We also call them the visitors, right, as well. Yeah, the, the, they're, they're, they're kind of um, more peaceful sounding names. They preferred was visitors. They also are called the Sagittarians because they claim to have come from somewhere in the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy, yeah. which is a small galaxy that's on the on the outskirts of our own, I believe. So they're gone to Mars. What's the problem? During their years of occupying the Earth, they infiltrated a lot of human governments. They swayed a lot of humans to their side. A lot of humans went over to their territory to defect because they promised to build a better world, a smarter, rational world where we would eschew our superstitions and our petty and our all the things that are problems in human society they promised that they could do away with and all you had to do was comply and cooperate further when they started off in africa they gave people who had lived in nothing but poverty suddenly they were living as well as anybody in the world they were educated they had all the resources they could need they had unlimited access to power and clean water and advanced technology. So more and more people from the earth started flocking over to their banner, but there was a price, you know, you had to comply. And dissent was not tolerated amongst them. So when it finally did come to war, a lot of people sided with them. Most of their armies were human by far. Um, they were never very many of them numerically, which is one of the reasons they lost. So they relied on human armies and they weren't conscripted armies they were all almost all volunteers so people fought and died for their vision of the better world at one point they the war expanded to north america they established a foothold in mexico and actually invaded. it was the first time the united states had been in, <clears throat> actually had enemy soldiers on our soil since the war of 1812 so you can imagine the kind of impact that had on the american psyche so um so there is a group of people um governmental and um and and uh, privately uh, employed who are hunting down these collaborators yes um after the war the united states was in kind of bad shape there were a lot of wartime excesses and abuses that the government was responsible for things people went along with that maybe in hindsight weren't a great idea it's kind of some shades of maybe something like the Patriot Act, but cranked up. You know, it was everything they did during World War II, but even more because there were enemy soldiers on American soil. People were afraid. A lot of your constitutional rights were just tossed aside. But after the war ended, 
a lot of suddenly a lot of those restrictions didn't go away. People had a vested interest in keeping that as the new status quo, and there was going to be a revolt. There was going to be a civil war if they didn't quit. So as a part of a grand compromise, there was a constitutional convention, and they passed a bunch of laws. And one of the things they did is they eliminated a lot of um, a lot of what we think of now as our federal law enforcement apparatus, which is humongous. For a couple of reasons. Number one, there wasn't people were very mistrustful of the new of the federal government after the war. And secondly, they didn't have the money for it. Every available resource is being put into rearming and reconstruction because the aliens were still there. They're still on Mars. There was this fear that they were going to come back. Mm -hmm. So almost every federal dollar is either going into reconstruction or it's going into the defense budget. That doesn't leave a lot of money left over for all the various alphabet agencies that exist in the real world. So what they did for the collaborators, because there's a lot of them, is they just contracted it out. Um, you can be a bounty hunter, a federal recovery officer, recovery agent. You have to go through a background check and some training, and you're a private citizen. You have certain powers as this, but you have certain limitations too. You're not a police officer. You, the, the, you are specifically and personally responsible for everything you do. You don't have the benefit of, uh, oh, well, <clears throat> if someone gets injured, and you're a police officer, well, the city covers that. You can't be sued personally. You, you have qualified immunity. Recovery, off, recovery agents don't have anything like qualified immunity. So that's one of the reasons not everybody does it, because <clears throat> if you make a mistake, you can get sued, you can get prosecuted. And But if you're willing to do it and you're willing to take the risk, it can be good money, because there are a lot of collaborators. And there is a standing um, system out there for capturing them, turning them in so they can be tried. And that's how the protagonist, Nathan Foster, makes a living. So tell us about Nathan. Um, he is, uh, he's, he's our main character and he's our main focus when we first uh, get into the story. Nathan Foster is a native of Arizona. He was in the army during the war. He was a tank commander. And, uh, he was in the army right up to the end of the war. His sister was killed during the wartime. And after the war, he came home and became the sole guardian of his, at the time of the story, 14-year-old nephew, Ben. So he's trying to make a living doing this dangerous job as a bounty hunter. And he has with him his 14-year-old boy. Ben isn't in school. Ben tested out of school. He's smart enough where he was able to basically get a high school diploma equivalent at 14. Yeah, he's super smart. And there's not, he is, but there isn't a whole lot for him to do. So Nathan doesn't have another trade, doesn't have anything to do with Ben except for teaching him what he knows. So Ben is kind of Nathan's partner. He's learning how to be a bounty hunter at 14 years old. Yeah. He's also like the, the tech guy in the van. Uh, when Nathan needs something like that, right? Yes. Yes. Ben is from the younger generation. He grew up with a lot of tech, technological gadgets that Nathan didn't. So Ben runs all the gadgets. He, they have a device called the identifier, which is kind of like a, it's a night vision capable video camera with facial recognition software built into it. It's this big bulky camcorder looking thing. And you know, Ben runs the computer and he's there as his backup. He's on the radio. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that someone can do without in that role without being directly in harm's way. The other member of the team, of course, is Shadow, a genetically yeah. engineered enhanced military working dog. A very good dog. And they can. All right. So there's there's several ways to recognize the collaborators, because it's not just that they know who they are. They can actually there's physical things about them can you explain the yes tattoo and the, um it's not a really one of the tattoo. yeah one of the benefits of joining the visitor side was that you got access to extremely advanced medicine they'd give you they would give you kind of injections and modifications that would make it so you didn't get sick very often you were very 
um, immune to most common diseases. You lived longer, you were healthier. A lot of the ravages of old age were limited, you know. And this is, I mean, it was a very tangible benefit, but that modified your, um, it modified your biochemistry sufficiently where a trained working dog can smell the difference and a blood test can tell the difference. So that's the main reason. That's the, that's the main way they're able to tell a collaborator is from either the smell or the blood test. But also most of the collaborators got an alien tattoo on their arm, which it's not like a tattoo, like a normal human tattoo. It's kind of a living organism, so it's hard to remove. That's how the visitors kept track of their humans was just that, that little thing growing in their arm. It's like a line of alien script, but it has several different functions. And so it's kind of hard. You can't remove that on your own. If you just scrape it off, it'll grow back. So that's the ways they mainly tell. Yeah. So um, the, the third member of the team is Stella. Um, and she comes from the law enforcement community, I guess, from before. And she's, she's, she's the, uh, the secretary and office manager and, and person who makes sure all the bounties get collected. Yes. Stella Rickles is Nathan's actual partner in the business. She's a, she owns half of the business. She worked for the Department of Homeland Security during the war, doing counterintelligence. When the war ended, she wanted to go home to Arizona, but there wasn't a lot of call for her line of work in Arizona. So she ended up, Nathan hired her basically as his office manager and eventually made her a full partner in the company. Because mm-hmm. um, she has a lot of experience managing the paperwork and dealing with the federal government because there's this entire you know um regimens of regulations they have to adhere to every dot every i has to be dotted every t has to be crossed there are things you can and can't do and if you mess up on your paperwork you can get fined you can get suspended it's just like any anybody who's actually worked with the federal government in any capacity will understand this so that's a full-time job for her and she also has sources she has contacts from her days in homeland security so people are willing to talk to her little birdies whisper in her ear and tell her where people might be so that's why she's become an invaluable member of the team she doesn't usually go out into the field because she's not trained for that but but you always need somebody that um while you're doing the dirty work <laughs> can keep the paperwork pretty much pretty much so nathan actually um, discovered oh go ahead yeah go ahead uh, Nathan discovered the hard way when he first started the business that keeping track of all the the bureaucratic side of it was a full-time job. He tried to do it himself and found out that it was a nightmare. So yeah. that was the end of that. So you're writing a novel of realism in that that sense. <laughs> so. Trying to, yeah. yeah. So um, what is... So Nathan is a real, he's a good guy. Um, he basically, you know, he's, he's not out bla- blowing people away, but um, he's quite willing to use deadly force if he has to, right? He's um, kind of Matt Dillon sort of fellow. I don't know. How would you describe him? I yeah, really enjoyed um, him as a main character. I got identified <sighs> until, you know, looked up to him. Um, Nathan, Nathan is... He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. He, when he first started the, started in the line of work, he some of it was kind of just he wanted some revenge. He wanted some payback on the people that had destroyed, helped destroy the world. He wanted to get the traitors and get them hung. Mm-hmm. That's usually what happens when they're convicted. They're executed by hanging. And, but as he grew older and as time went on, he began to take his job seriously. He, he takes seriously the responsibilities that comes with it. He does not want to use deadly force if he doesn't have to. Not only is it there's a you know there's a moral quandary in that for him, but also it greatly in, in increases the amount of paperwork you have to do. And as you're one of these as one of these bounty hunters, if you make a habit of just killing your bounties, sooner or later you're going to get audited and your license pulled, and they're going to tell you that you can't do it anymore. So you do have federal regulators still breathing down your neck over things like that. So you, it's not just a license to kill. So he tries his best to bring his targets in alive so they can stand trial. He even states at one point, as the it's even stated at one point that he 
parents to keep in mind that they still might be innocent. I mean, it's not likely if you have the tattoo on your arm and all that, but there are, as we learn in the story, collaborators who were maybe not so willing. Well, let's talk about that. So, all right, he's, he's, he's very effective and Ben is helpful. Um, and he's, uh, he's got a buddy, a lot like Larry Correa's uh, weapons maker dude who makes cool stuff for him to use um, to, to capture some of them. Um, but there is, we, we switch points of view then to Imogene. Um, and what is her last, I can't remember, but- um, Imogene Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. So, and she is in a completely different situation. In fact, we meet her in a, in a prison. Um, tell us about her and, and her initial quandary. What's going on there? Emma Jean is a convicted collaborator. When we meet her in the story, she is, as you said, she's in a federal detention facility in New Mexico. Um, the thing is for her, she doesn't have very many memories of her time all these years she spent working for the visitors. At some point before the story began, her memory was wiped and she has no idea why. After the war, um, certain holdout groups carted her around Mexico until they were finally run down and captured by the Mexican army. And they wouldn't let her go. They kept saying she was important, but nobody would tell her anything. She has no idea what she did during the war. She has almost no memory of it. She has almost no memory of her life before the war. And yet there was enough information on her for her to be convicted. Um, there was video of her making propaganda videos for the visitors. She was like a, almost like an influencer for them when she was younger, but she has almost no memory of this time. So she's in prison serving her sins. She's frustrated. She feels bad because look what happened. Look what happened to the world. And she doesn't even remember why she did it. Yeah, and, and as we learn, there's a reason she can't remember any of this. I mean, this stuff has been wiped. Um, yes. But it wasn't wiped to the point where she could not, um, you know, she lost the, her, her native tongue or anything. So there's traces of memories that, that she's still got in her. Yeah, the alien memory wiping procedure is not well understood by humans. Um, it, it's, it can be dangerous. And they had, apparently when they do it, they have to be careful because if you wipe too much, you could turn somebody into a vegetable. You know, they just forget everything. And eventually you start to get it back. It's not necessarily permanent, but it was done to her as kind of a, a last minute stopgap at the end of the war, kind of... Uh, they're, they're closing in on us, throwing the files into the trash can and burn them type thing. Yeah, yeah. So she was kind of degaussed. Yes. <laughs> so, but, but the reason they did that is because she is, she is a secret. Um, yes. Emma Jean was part of a program called Section 13, which is kind of the visitors' forces, um, kind of like their, their, their black ops section they did experimental weapons and things like that section 13 is where the bioweapons came from um emma jean as she discovers has been implanted with a device in her head that allows her to manipulate people around her it's a sort of short-range mind control device and she learns this in kind of a spectacular fashion too yeah. um, and this is early in the book so we could probably talk about it i think yes yes cool it's scene. It's, it's in her it's in her second i think her second or third scene that we we discover this so but she doesn't have she has no memory of getting it she doesn't know how to control it and apparently it doesn't even work correctly but the way that it it, it gets you to, to the other person um will, it, for instance somebody's trying to kill her and and uh they she just turns not by her, her own free will necessarily, it's more like a subconscious reaction, right? It's a, a sort of stress, maybe adrenaline, maybe panic reaction, manages to activate the device after it's been dormant for so many years. And it works through very short range, low frequency radio, electromagnetic radiation, which 
I did some research on this and these things, if applied correctly, can do weird things to the human mind. You can cause panic. You can simulate religious experiences. Mm. You can garner compliance. You can, it's effective communication, I think it's called. I, I spoke with a uh, neuroscientist about this, but that was a while ago. So forgive me if I'm forgetting some of these actual terms, but the limitations are though, number one, it doesn't work very well. It was a prototype. And number two, she can't control it. And number three, it's very short ranged. And if the potential victim is aware of it, that kind of like, if you realize it, it's like being hypnotized if you don't want to be hypnotized. You know, you're like, I'm not going to cooperate with this. La, 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 la. Uh Never back. <laughs> I'm back. So uh, fun fact, the little uh, button on the side of my headset will disconnect the call. <laughs> so, now you know. But, <laughs> but as I was saying, yes, the uh, if you're aware of the effects of the device, you can kind of it, it can be mitigated. Even just gaining distance, you know, the, the electromagnetic wave still the inverse square law still applies. So it's only useful over a very short range. Hmm. But it's extremely uh, effective if you don't know what's happening to you, and yes. uh, and you are in that range, so you got to watch out. The other, all right. So, um, and this is just the the tip of the iceberg of some alien uh, messing with humans that we find out about, as well as um, the fact that um, once uh, our people now know in the now in the in the book know about it. Um, some of them are probably just want to cut it out of her and see what it is. See if there's yes. something there. Yeah. And because she's once, a war criminal, so who cares, right? Yeah. Once it's discovered, suddenly Homeland Security is very interested in her. In fact, she has she's afraid they're gonna, I think a quote from the book, send her to Area 51 and dissect her. Um yeah. because obviously there are people in the government who would like to have a mind control device. I mean, for good reasons and for maybe less than good reasons, you can think like if this technology is out there, you'd kind of want your own team to understand it so they can counteract it and know how to like know how to counteract the devices, know how to remove them and all that. But on the other hand, maybe they would be tempted to use it for unethical purposes. Yeah. yeah. So um, and that brings us to this fellow named Anthony um who uh who shows up um and and claims to be her love match um talk a little bit about him because he's, he becomes a major character as well in the anthony is he's originally from switzerland he willingly joined the visitor forces at a young age and worked his way up into um one of their elite commando units this one's called Earthstorm. These people were the best trained. They had all of the enhancements the visitors could provide and not no small amount of brainwashing went into their um, training as well. They were dedicated fanatics. They never surrendered. They fought to the last and they would actually open fire on their own forces if they tried to surrender or retreat. Like their regular um, visitor forces, this is called the United Earth Army, I believe. Um, was the official name for their military organization, hated working with these commando units because they were like the Soviet commissars in World War II. If you showed any disloyalty or any fear, they would just kill you and they could do whatever they wanted. So Anthony went on the run after the war. At first he was carting Imogene around, but then he had to leave. And we meet him also in a spectacular fashion when he comes to spring her out of prison. And he tells her that they were meant to be together. They were meant to be a matched pair um, selected for their, their psychological compatibility, their biological compatibility. And uh, 
Emma Jean has some memories of him. They were lovers at one point. But after most of her memories of him are from after the war, when he started to come more and more unhinged. The problem with all those brainwashing and psychological manipulation techniques the aliens would use is without regular um, refreshers, I guess, or at least medication, that could would drive some of these people insane. Yeah. So Anthony kind is kind of... Yeah, go ahead. He, he's kind of struggling on the edge of sanity a little bit through most of the book. He's a he's so he's a crazed super soldier. Um, Basically, he's he's really he's still highly effective. And in fact, you know, and this makes him quite the match for Nathan, um, because Nathan is so good that just regular people are are, are at a disadvantage. But um, but this guy this guy is a, is a, is a pretty good um, antagonist. For and it's also eight years after the war, a lot of the low hanging fruits already been plucked. Mm. If some of these guys are still on the run after that long, it's because either there wasn't, they didn't do much. There isn't a big interest in capturing them or they're really, really good. Anthony Krieg was really, really good. Plus he fled the United States for most of that time. So there was no jurisdiction for him anyway. There's still, there's still an underground of, of uh, humans, collaborators, ex-collaborators who, who aren't, don't only think that the visitors are coming back. They kind of actively trying to work for it. Yes. Um, a lot of the human the former human collaborators, millions of them, have been exiled to a place in Africa called the Free Territories. It's in Central Africa. Um, it was kind of the nexus of the aliens' human civilization there. And their home countries wouldn't take them back after the war. So they're like, you can go live in the mess you made in. Most of it's okay to live in. Part of it was heavily destroyed by nuclear bombardment so quite a bit of it's very irradiated it's not necessarily a great place to live but you know you back the wrong horse that's what that's what you get i guess but most of those people are just trying to get on with their lives um there's another group called the sagittarian faction which is they are true believers and a lot of your ex-commandos are in there these are people who believe the visitors are going to come back and when they do they're going to win this time they're going to reward them for their loyalty and their perseverance so they're still true to the cause and that makes them all the more dangerous yeah and uh well, probably i mean that's about where we should I mean, obviously um through some some various uh things that happen it comes to be that nathan is is chasing after imogene and and uh trying to find her and that's uh, and and thereafter will probably be spoilers, um, it, but it's quite a um, it, it's pretty cool because we begin to really peel back the onion of what the aliens were up to and where they came from as and as Nathan discovers more and more, um, they're like uh, they they have a cast they're like biological caste system right they're um, yes um, a lot of things that we did with technology they would do with bioengineering so like they have some of their the alien soldier units that they're called they, they call them uh, heavies or there's other names for them basically it's a seven foot tall alien meat robot that's really strong it sometimes wears a power a suit of power armor and carries a big gun and that's the uh fellow you see dead on the cover there is one of those they're not particularly bright as far as we understand it it's not there's some debate over how much cognition they actually have but they're dangerous they're, like i said they're like biological robots but there's also like a worker slash soldier cast which have more it's kind of like your average human in as far as their ability to think and solve problems and but above that, you have their brights, which is the human name for them. The ones that they're geniuses. They're, they're the movers and shakers of their society. They're the ones that guide their society. They're the elite class. And those are the ones who are responsible for making all their civilizational decisions. They're the scientists and the researchers and the leaders. But we don't ever see very many of these. The, 
by the the humans who worked for the visitors viewed these the bright ones as they started calling them as almost like a like a like a demigods you know they was a, a quasi religious aspect to them which is ironic because the aliens themselves insisted on making their human followers eschew all religion and superstition but humans being humans just replaced one with another yeah and uh, we encounter some aliens. There's still some aliens on Earth to encounter as well. So, but we should probably say no more about that. Um, what else can we say about the book that, um, that that might be intriguing, but not give too much away? <laughs> um, I was inspired to write the book. I was on a trip to Arizona in, I think, 2016. And I was in northern Arizona coming from the Four Corners down into Flagstaff from the north. And I, somewhere up on the Navajo Reservation, I passed an abandoned roadside motel. And it just looked very desolate. It was just, you know, it was still fully intact, but there was nothing around for miles. And that image stuck with me. So I got this image, the scene in, idea in my head of... You know, what if there's something hiding in there and the, and the hero has to go in there and, and chase it out. And then of course it turned into what if it was an alien because you know, that's, that's why I'm a sci-fi writer, I guess. And <laughs> it, it took funny. a few years for the story to gestate and then even, even longer for me to actually finish it. I actually ended up moving to Arizona. Much of the story is set around Prescott, Arizona, where I lived for a couple of years. And I, I love, I love the state of Arizona. And I love Prescott. So part of the book too is, Kind of a love letter for me to the southwest because it is amazing it's a beautiful place and i think it was a great setting for this kind of thing especially since you know with uh you have the alamo uh, the alamo the uh you know you have you have the uh missile testing ranges out in new mexico you have area 51 in nevada and you have with these alien sightings and ufo sightings that allegedly happen out there it just seemed like a fitting setting for this sort of book yeah yeah and it's got this wonderful sort of western influence as well with um with some guns yeah and, and nathan nathan nathan's character was kind of inspired by um partially by my playthrough of red dead redemption 2 so he <laughs> very much has an attitude of a cowboy uh-huh yeah well it's very cool um what are you working on now? Um, I am working now on a science fiction detective novel. It's not, I don't want to say it's a mystery novel because it's not, I'm not doing the thing where I lay out the clues and the reader tries to figure out the mystery before the protagonist does. I'm, I'm a hack writer of rocket pulp. That level of fancy writing is beyond me. I'm just writing a classic like pulp detective story where you're along with the ride for the hero as he cracks the case and fights the bad guys. And there's a femme fatale in the story and it's gonna be a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun writing it so far. Very cool, very cool. Well, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is The Family Business by Mike Coopery. Um, and it is uh, kind of a Western science fiction. Um, and if you like aliens and uh, post-apocalyptic landscapes, uh, this one's for you. It's really good stuff, fun stuff. Um, and thanks so much for talking with us about the family business, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. 
They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. March 1923, Post-Diaspora. King Michael's Tower. Mount Royal Palace, City of Landing, Manticore Binary System, Star Empire of Manticore. So it looks, so far, like things are going about as well as they could, Prime Minister Grantville said. He sipped whiskey and shook his head. I can't begin to count all the ways this could still go south on us, and I wish to hell we still had Tony to advise us, but I think Carmichael's settling in as foreign secretary. He probably knows the Sollies even better than Tony did, and he's pretty dumb confident it's going to hold up. Thank God, a very pregnant Alison Harrington said quietly. Prolong extended gestation periods, and it seemed that, like Faith and James, her third daughter would be born on Grayson. Now she sat, holding Raoul in her lap, between her daughter and her brother. I was really, really afraid somebody might be stupid enough to go ahead and fight. That kind of stupid deserves to be called before it reproduces, Allie, Jacques Benton Ramirez Chu, the newly named Beowulf Director of Defense, said flatly. Unfortunately, none of the people who currently feel that way are quite stupid enough. They're not going to poke their heads out of hiding as long as my long, tall niece is here waiting to whack them right off. He smiled at Honor with fierce approval. He was still in a gravity float chair and would be for at least another three or four weeks. His brother-in-law had a pronounced tendency to keep a close eye on him, which, in fact, Commodore Harrington was doing at that very moment. But he was very much a going concern again, and so was Bark Chewersbane. Now the tree cat yawned, bearing needle-sharp canines in Jacques's lap. But Honor shook her head as she bounced Catherine very gently on her knee. I'm done whacking off heads, she said, bending over to plant a kiss on the part of the little girl's hair. Then she turned her head and smiled at Hamish, sitting in the chair beside hers while Nimitz and Samantha stretched across the chair backs before she looked back at her uncle. Besides, it sounds like I won't have to. No, you won't. Elizabeth Winton told her with a warm smile. I think you've done just about all of that we're going to need for a while. Honor nodded, making no effort to conceal her relief. The Solarian Assembly was furious, and it wasn't making much effort to hide that fury, but it was also honoring the terms Winston Kingsford had accepted in the Solarian League's name. The new Constitutional Convention had been officially seated on the last day of February. Not all of its delegates had arrived yet, and it was still very much at the setting up stage, but all their intelligence sources suggested that the convention meant business. Despite its resentment of the League's ignominious defeat, its members seemed to genuinely understand why they were there. More to the point, whether they chose to admit it or not, every single one of them knew the task to which they'd been called was centuries overdue. And with the Mandarin's disastrous example so fresh in their memory, it was unlikely they'd repeat the same mistakes. Of course, she reflected with the resignation of someone who loved history. That just means they'll find other mistakes to make. They're human beings, and the two things humans make are tools and mistakes. But sometimes we get stuff right, too. And there are some really good models out there, if they're only willing to do the research. I guess we'll have to see about that. Actually, she reminded herself, the odds were better for the Sollies than for some other Constitution writers because they had a pretty demanding editor looking over their shoulders. The Grand Alliance had meant it when she told the Solarian public the Allies didn't care what form of government the League adopted. But it had also meant it when she told them that whatever form they adopted, elected office holders would exercise the decision-making power and be held accountable for those decisions. That and the secession provision were non-negotiable from the Allies' perspective and the hundred or so ships of the wall still riding old Earth orbit were a silent, pointed reminder to that effect. The situation in the Protectorates promised to be more complicated and probably ugly. In some instances, like Hotjebosch, Seraphim, Votswavik, Mobius, and Swallow, the local star systems looked to be adjusting well, with a minimum of bloodshed and civil unrest. In other cases, not so much. There were a lot of scores to pay off out there in the fringe, 
especially on the planets whose native oligarchs had been deepest in OFS's pocket. And OFS wasn't going out of its way to engineer any soft landings. In fact, some OFS governors and managers were clearly determined to make the entire process as ugly as they possibly could. And it's our fault, too, she admitted unflinchingly. We knew a lot of this would happen when we issued the demand. But I honestly don't see any other way we could have gone. If we hadn't demanded Frontier Security's total and immediate disbandment, something that big, with so many people in other people's pockets, would have hung on, claiming it was winding down as quickly as possible for decades, maybe even longer. Quite a few Manticoran politicians argued that the Star Empire had a moral responsibility to provide the stability the ex-protectorates needed. That as the creator of the power vacuum, the Grand Alliance was the only force capable of filling it. Part of Honor wanted badly to endorse that argument. She was a historian, and specifically a military historian, and she knew how poorly it was going to end in some of those star systems. She didn't want to see that, and she knew she wanted to avoid the moral guilt for having allowed it to happen. But the last thing the galaxy needed was for the Grand Alliance to simply replace frontier security. And the last thing the Grand Alliance needed was to turn into frontier security. The Office of Frontier Security had started with the best of intentions, and it had taken a while for it to warp and corrode. But it had happened, and Honor Alexander Harrington had no desire to see her star nation, either of her star nations, start down that dark and twisty road. Besides, there's such a thing as independence and maturity. Star nations have to learn to walk just like anybody else, and they need to learn to stand on their own two feet. We won't do them any favors by casting a protective wing over them if it prevents them from learning both those things. And it wasn't like the Grand Alliance was simply going to walk away. It had no intention of intervening to impose outside solutions, but it was prepared to trade with any star system, support any legitimate government, extend economic support and military aid as trading or treaty partner. And it was prepared to whack any hands that got too greedy and grasping where their neighbor's toys were concerned. No doubt there would be an upsurge in piracy and warlordism. But the Royal Manticoran Navy had cut its eye teeth in the Silesian Confederacy. Any newly independent star systems who were inclined to emulate their erstwhile OFS masters would discover the RMN and its allies had a short way with freebooters and would-be conquistadors. Speaking of which... I had a letter from Tom yesterday, she said, looking at Elizabeth, who leaned back on an old, worn, sinfully comfortable couch beside Prince Consort Justin, while Ariel and Monroe drowsed with the blissful limpness of tree cats stuffed with far too much celery. Did you? Elizabeth asked tranquilly. Yes. He said something about making the alliance permanent. She regarded her monarch thoughtfully. It wouldn't happen you, and of course, my esteemed brother-in-law, she added, looking pointedly at Grantville, know what he was talking about, would it? Elizabeth glanced at Grantville. The prime minister looked back at her for a moment, then shrugged, and the empress returned her gaze to honor. Actually, it would happen I do. I just wasn't planning on discussing it with you yet. Not until you come back from Grayson, anyway. Oh, Anna raised an eyebrow, looking rather more intently at her monarch, and her tone might have held just the slightest edge of suspicion. It's fairly straightforward, really, Elizabeth said. The problem Eloise and I see is how long the People's Republic of Haven and the Star Kingdom of Manticore spent being enemies. I think we're probably past the worst of that, but old memories die hard especially in a civilization that has prolong. And even those who don't actively cherish old animosities don't have a very deep reservoir of what you might call warm and fuzzy memories. Once upon a time, the Star Kingdom and the Republic had just that. But that was before the legislaturalists. We've got some new ones we can build on. But there's a genuine danger zone between where we are now and where we need to be. The fact that a lot of people see the way we cleaned the Solarian League's clock as proof that we are the new model invincible star nation 
isn't calculated to help me and Eloise sleep soundly at night, either. She grimaced. You and Hamish are the historians, but I've read a little history myself. If there's anything in the universe more dangerous than complacency, I don't have a clue what it might be. There isn't anything. Outside political or religious fanaticism, anyway, Honor said glumly, hugging Catherine against her chest and resting her chin lightly on the crown of her daughter's head. And it's not made any better by the fact that you brought home everything in the Solarian League Navy's databanks. Elizabeth sighed. Everybody knows you got it, too, so the Complacency Brigade is sitting around in a blissful haze, contemplating the fact that we know exactly what the League was up to, and, therefore, what it's capable of. They do remember Operation Thunderbolt, don't they, Your Majesty? Alfred Harrington asked. I seem to remember that the despised peeps managed to overcome a fairly severe technological deficit. Honestly, Commodore Harrington, how could you even imagine I'd be so crass and crude as to point that out to them? The irony in Elizabeth's tone could have turned Jason Bay into a desert, and Alfred shook his head with a snort of disgust. Fortunately, what Her Majesty is calling the Complacency Brigade is a distinct minority at the moment, Granville said. And the same is true at the moment, for the people who don't see any reason the Republic and the Star Empire need to stay focused and on the same page. What Her Majesty and President Pritchard have been discussing is how we might go about keeping things that way. And you've come up with? Honor raised both eyebrows at him, and he nodded in Elizabeth's direction, obviously returning the thread to her. We're not worried at all, as long as Eloise is in office, Elizabeth said. She and I understand each other, and we intend to stay in very close touch. And Benjamin Mayhew intends to stay in the mix as well as Oroville Baregos. Unfortunately, she won't be in office forever. In fact, the Havenite Constitution limits her to no more than three successive terms. The Empress grimaced. I think that needs to be changed, and I think some of the Constitution's other term limit aspects, especially the clause limiting a president's term to only five T years, reflects pre-prolonged thinking. Now, the Constitution does allow someone to run for the office again, after being out of office for at least one term, and I'd say if anyone had a chance of pulling that off, it would be Eloise, or Tom Theismann, if he wasn't smart enough to stay as far away from elective office as physically possible. And some members of Congress are pressing to amend the Constitution to remove the three successive terms limitation specifically so she can run again. Eloise won't hear of it, though. For that matter, I think she'd be highly resistant to running for office again, ever, once her three terms are up. I can see that, Honor said. She's a historian, too. Quite a bit of that going around lately, thank God, Hamish put in. Probably, Elizabeth nodded. And I can understand why it's so important to her to fully establish, re-establish the rule of law in Nouveau Paris. She and Tom Theismann and all the others paid cash for that. And she's not going to let anyone, even or especially herself, establish any fresh president-for-life precedents. Good for her, Honor said. Like I say, from her perspective, I understand entirely. From my perspective, though, it sucks wind, Elizabeth said frankly. She grimaced. I have such a great relationship with her. She paused for a moment, eyes distant as if considering what she'd just said, then shook her head. I really do have a great relationship with her, she said almost wonderingly. Never would have seen that coming, but it's true. And that, her gaze sharpened once again, is why I don't feel anything like confident about the chance of establishing an equally good relationship with whoever succeeds her. Honor nodded thoughtfully, and Elizabeth shrugged. So, what she and I are going to do in, oh, a tea year or so, is to propose a sort of federated association, I suppose you'd call it, 
between Manticore and Haven. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a pair of good stalking boots and a set of rapacious alien sniffing homing beacons plus thanks and praise for Mike Coopery, author of The Family Business. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>